right. So you remember they did this It remake and the sequel a few years back, right? And, you know, I grew up in the 90s, late 80s, early 90s, and I remember one of the things that was kind of like a, a, a like a landmark of the time was the It miniseries that came out on ABC. I think it was like 1990. It was like right in that period where you could see like things were changing, like in the landscape of film and TV. But also I was at the right age where I started paying attention to it more. Like things were changing, like style and the types of stories. And here, you know, I remember watching it and thinking, I've never seen anything like this on television. Like this, like long form, multiple nights, I think it was two nights, of this adaptation of a pretty wild horror novel from Stephen King. It's like something you would only really catch in film. I know there were a couple of adaptations for TV. Was it like Salem's Lot? But this one, yeah, I remember reading the book before the TV series. And if you haven't read the book, just be aware, just be warned that it's got a lot of heavy stuff in it. And part of it is because the characters in some parts of the book are children and they're these characters are really subjected to some really horrific shit. But then even as adults, it's looking at their way of processing or living with the trauma of things that they went through. Of course, this is all metaphor for growing up and adolescence and bullying, all that, right? So when this miniseries hit, I I, I don't know, it caught me right at the right moment or... It just all lined up where that was really influential to me. And so things like Pennywise, things like the Losers Club, uh, even Derry, Maine, which, you know, I've never been to New England. I, I just, in my mind, it kind of set the bar for what things are like. Of course, it's not reality. It's a work of fiction and Derry is not even a real place, but there's enough there that feels similar enough that it's easy to identify with and it's easy to really latch onto just some of the ideas in there. So anyway, look, that's all to say, I finally watched this documentary, Pennywise, the story of it. It just came out a couple years ago and it really goes in depth into the making of this miniseries, one from the perspective of writing it, like actually adapting this monster novel into, I think originally it was supposed to be a film. You know, this is before the days of like eight episodes of something on HBO or whatever. Right. So here, this was four hours of primetime television on network TV. So that means there's only so much you can really do you really don't even have four straight hours, right? Cause you got to allow for commercial breaks and all that. So it's long form, but not like we know television today. So it's a very different kind of animal. And this of course, opened it up to where Stephen King adaptations came in even more afterwards, right? You had like, a, I think the Tommyknockers, the Langoliers, 
uh, Storm of the Century. There were several others that followed, I think based on the success of this. So anyway, watching this documentary, it was strange to, one, to kind of see behind the scenes, like how it all came together and what they had to either compromise or cut out or sacrifice from the novel to just get to the core of this story. And also to look back, I mean, this documentary, it has interviews with most of the cast. And it's strange because when I saw this in 1990, I would have been, what, 14, 15 years old. And so to me, the adults were adults. But now I'm an adult. And I think I'm probably even older than they were in the story. And yet most of the cast is still around. They're in interviews here. Even the kid actors are grown up now and they're adults. So it's a strange kind of weird time warp thing to see these people that you may have had like kind of cemented in your mind as this age or they looked a certain way. Time has taken its toll on everybody. Of course, it just reminds me of like, oh, yeah, you're old, too, guy. It was great to see this uh, as a little bit of a, of a flashback to a different time, a different way of how TV worked and even the impact that this story had. And of course, I mean, I saw the remakes and I like those films also. I like them for different reasons. Uh, this one, I think it was more about it was so kind of out of left field and for me at the time, and maybe for most people, it was really kind of shocking, like the subject matter, even though this was on network TV, you could kind of read between the lines and get what, you know, what the idea was. You could, you could understand the subtext, right? So this was a pretty great documentary to watch. I, I remember hearing about it and I just kind of put it aside. I thought I'll get to it one day. And uh, one night I was just drawing a bunch of clowns and, uh, you know, famous ones, Pennywise, of course, but uh, some other ones, famous movie clowns and all that kind of stuff. And I said, you know, I got to see this documentary. I've been putting it off for too long. So this was a good one. I mean, if you like the miniseries, which, you know, hey, look, to be fair, I don't really think it's aged so well. I think it doesn't hold up. And especially when you compare it to the new films. Uh, the new films really go to places where this couldn't because of just network standards and practices, you know? But also it tried to reimagine some things or or kind of reinterpret some ideas from the novel. And even something like moving the time frame, right? Like the original novel, I think, takes place in the 50s. And then as they're adults, was that like in the 80s, I guess? So it's like 27 years difference. The miniseries here kind of holds to that same, uh, that same time frame. I think it's moved just a little bit. The new films, if you haven't seen those, they really changed the whole game. I mean, it's, I think the original, when the kids are, when it's the kid's story, I think it's like the late 80s or mid 80s. And then we jump to current day, basically like 2000s, 2010s or something like that. So it's, it, it kind of makes for a little bit of a different story, even though a lot of the the ideas are the same. This documentary specifically going into 
what these people, the, the cast, uh, what the, the writers, the filmmakers, what they all had in mind and how they tried to get there. And even calling out parts of it that didn't really come off like they probably had hoped, you know, even down to the whole weird spider thing at the end, which was, I look, that's, that's one thing that hasn't aged so well, right? Even acknowledging the weird child orgy scene, which is, honestly, it's, it's always been problematic. I didn't even know how to handle it when I originally read it. But to see that this miniseries and the new films just totally just skip that part, uh, I think that speaks to, uh, one, the frame of mind of Stephen King, but also how that story is. Because somehow you find yourself... I mean, this is from memory. I haven't read the book in forever. But you find yourself at that moment, at that point in the story, and you're like, I guess, I mean, everything else is crazy. So I guess this makes sense. But the fact that this uh, documentary, it really goes, it really goes into depth. It talks to all the actors. I mean, except for, I, I mean, the obvious one, Jonathan Brand is not a part of his documentary. He had passed away many years ago now. Um, I mean, he was still a young guy when he passed away. I, you know, it was nice to see that everybody else that's on this documentary, they at least acknowledge and they express that kind of uh, admiration, that kind of celebration of him and what, you know, what the promise was. I mean, because I thought for the time, at least, I thought he was a really interesting and soulful actor i mean especially for a kid and it seemed like he was on a track to really do some some really interesting work and it's a shame we'll never get to see that and and another tim curry is in this documentary but it's clearly after he's had some health issues i think he had a stroke several years ago and so you know he's not the tim curry from decades past yeah, he's still able to talk about his part and his approach to the character and what the impact has been from his point of view. And that's good to see. It's good to hear because that is such an iconic uh, portrayal of Pennywise. I mean, no slight to Bill Skarsgård and what he did, but Tim Curry really kind of set the bar really high. It's like Jack Nicholson with the Joker, right? It's like, you got to do something really wild and really different to be better than that. It's not to say it's impossible, but the first one is kind of the one that leaves the biggest impression, you know? So um, the only one I didn't see or I don't recall seeing in the documentary is Annette O'Toole. And it's strange because I've always thought she was a great actor and her character, you know, her portrayal of Bev as an adult was... I mean, it's different than the newer films, but I think there's a tenderness to it. And I, I feel like only Annette O'Toole could have really brought to it. So I, I don't know what the reason would be. She wasn't in the documentary, but overall, I think it's pretty strong, especially if you're a fan. If you're not a fan, I, you know, if you haven't seen the miniseries, maybe that's something you should do first before you watch this, of course. But if, you, if you've seen the newer films, it might be a little bit of a shock going backwards I mean, you'd be going back 30 years to watch something that was on broadcast television. So it's not going to be the same. But 
I don't know. I enjoyed it. I thought it was an interesting look. I mean, I don't think I'm going to go watch the miniseries anytime soon. So this is probably as close as I'm going to get. So then after that, I said, you know what? I want to watch something that is horror themed, horror related, but uh, scary movies are kind of tough these days, at least for me. Cause I just feel like I've seen enough of them. Uh, most of them, I don't really have a big appreciation for because I feel like I've seen all the tricks. You kind of know how things are done. You kind of know what to expect. You can kind of read where things are going. And yet, uh, I still wanted to see something that would be entertaining at least. So all that to say, I found these films, which I'd heard about before, but I never watched them because I just thought that looks goofy. That looks kind of silly. Meet the Blacks and the house next door, Meet the Blacks too. I look, I just had to see these movies. I saw a little thing for them like, hey, watch this next or recommend it or whatever. I'm like, all right, let's do it. And the first one is, I guess, basically like a parody or, or like a take on The Purge, right? I mean, it's pretty explicit throughout the film. It's like The Purge Night, and this is all what's happening. And they've got this family. Mike Epps is the, the dad, the husband. He's got the two kids. He's got the wife. And it's all about them being kind of fish out of water. They're living in Beverly Hills. It's said many times. They've come into money. They're living in a neighborhood. And yet... It's a film that is trying to like poke fun and comment on racism and class and privilege and all that kind of stuff. And I could see it. I mean, I can understand that's the goal. But really, this is all about Mike Epps and Lil Duvall as two of the main characters. And they're just tagging each other up. It's just like sniper level comedy timing and bits. There's so many like, just like throw away like one-liners and cracks on each other is so sharp. I mean, the comedy in these films and you almost feel like it's ad lib, like it's not even written. Like these guys are just getting down, just ripping on each other. I mean, it's, it's crazy and it's funny too. Now it's not necessarily a great film. Like the story, the plot, uh, I kind of could have done without actually. And sometimes it gets kind of aggressive. It gets kind of loud. It gets kind of big and bold. Other times it's more kind of sly, like, oh, we just, you know, we're going to slide this one line in here and talk about your hair for a second. I mean, speaking of clowns and, and I was drawing clowns, it introduced me to a new clown, which I didn't even know. A Mike Tyson in the first one. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. I, I couldn't help it. I, <laughs> the way Mike Tyson comes off in this film, I was like, uh, this is a new classic character for me. I don't know for why. I mean, he's only in the film for like a few minutes in one scene. If I remember right, his character, James, the clown, it just shocked me. And it's funny, but it's one of those is like, if you're not ready for it, Oh man, it's, is wild. I mean, it's a good time. And, and that's to say, look, that's Mike Tyson, but both of these films have a lot of cameos and they're kind of real. They're, they're small. Sometimes there's a little bit of stunt casting, but I mean, you got Charlie Murphy in here. You got Gary Owen, Paul Mooney, Paul Mooney comes up with like three lines in the movie. And it's like the wildest lines you would hear. 
And, you know, here's a character that comes in at the very end of the first movie. He's more in the second movie. But he shows up, and I'm like, wait a minute. This dude, he's Rico in this movie, in these two movies. He's Rico in Belly. And for whatever reason, all these years, I've never connected it. That's Kane. Tyron Turner. I just didn't even recognize him with the, with the Coke bottle glasses, with the long hair. I'm like, wait, that's Kane from Menace to Society? Come on. I never put those two together. I don't know how I didn't. Anyway, there's a lot of cameos in here and a lot of like, it's just, it's just a good time. It's not scary. It's honestly not even that like suspenseful or uh, thrilling. It's more about just watching these fools just like go at each other. And the same with the sequel, Meet the Blacks 2. I mean, that one's got a little bit of a different level to it because it goes away from the Purge parody kind of territory and it goes into the weird uh, vampire pimp next door played by Cat Williams, who brings his own energy to it because sometimes it's real quiet, real subtle, but sharp. And then other times it gets big and crazy and, you know, when he turns into, like, the full vampire and all that, I mean, it's a lot. But, again, it's all about, I think, this film. I Look, shout out to Mike Epps for really taking, like, a starring role here. And I know these aren't big films. These aren't blockbusters. But they're fun. And if that's all you go into it expecting, I think you'd be all right. If you want, like, really a hardcore horror gore fest, this ain't it. It's not even about that. It's about just put this on and just kind of kick back and just enjoy it. So these two, look, I have to recommend them because I feel like they're a good time. But as far as films themselves, I mean, the filmmaking, the writing of it isn't necessarily the greatest, but that's all right. It's just something to have a good time with. So now, on the other hand, if you want to talk about some films that are not necessarily good times... I mean, I also saw this new one, No One Will Save You, which I remember reading something about it. I think it was like a quote or, or an article, an interview with Guillermo de Toro. And he said this was like, uh, I, I don't, I'm paraphrasing, but it was like his ideal creature uh, horror scare fest or whatever. And that says a lot to me because I feel like his films, his types of stories, even his like visual style is very distinct and is very strong. And for him to like really give props to another film or another filmmaker, I got to see what that's about. And so watching this, I'm like, wait a minute. Okay. You get through a good part of the movie and you realize, wait, there hasn't been any dialogue yet. And this is really, it's, it's focused on one character. It's a young woman she lives by herself. She lives in this house. It's kind of out, like out in the country or off in the woods or whatever. It, it, it's kind of hard to really establish like what is going on and why things are the way they are when none of the characters are speaking. And it's not because they're not speaking. Like it's not like a quiet place where they're trying to avoid speaking. It's just it, it plays in the moments like between dialogue in a way. Or like it plays in glances or movement versus 
the parts where characters say what they need to say, it plays the moments after that or before that or around it, you know? It's an interesting approach to storytelling. I give you that. And once the once this young woman finds that there are this is basically like an alien invasion movie, but it's a series of aliens and encounters in her home. The, the, she's trying to avoid being captured or found or uh, killed, I guess. And yet it's kind of a, a deeper examination of someone dealing with grief and alienation and, and, and the anxiety that comes from that. Right. So I feel like there's something to it. It's got some substance to it. But there becomes a point where the whole no dialogue, it it stops being a, like a narrative device and it starts to turn into a gimmick a little bit. Because I feel like there are moments where somebody should have said something here. Even if she's just saying it to herself. Like something, it's like you're avoiding saying words now just because. Now, I don't know if that's part of the the idea, the intention, but it starts to wear a little thin after a while. And yet, I, I do got to give it props that the creature designs, let's say, the the aliens or monster designs and the, the way they are presented is pretty dope. I mean, it's different. It's not wildly different. Like you could probably see like this looks like something from another movie at some point, but I don't know, just some of the way the, the sequences are set up, even the, the movements of the creatures is just odd enough, stiff enough, but like almost robotic in a way. It, it's hard to describe. You kind of just have to see it. So I think at least there's an attempt to do something a little bit more inventive, kind of push, push the the idea a little further. But I don't know; if it's one that I would necessarily see again at any point because I feel like there are parts of this that you either saw in, you know, Spielberg's War of the Worlds, or even something like um, was it Ten Cloverfield Lane? You know, there are a couple parts at the end of that film where it's just one character trying to avoid or fight off an alien or aliens, right? So I feel like there's enough here that's borrowed from other movies that are probably also better movies. But if you're just interested in in a watch that is all about atmosphere and action, no real character development or i mean there is some you you do get some background on what this young woman's going through and why she is why her situation is what it is okay but it's really kind of like i said the whole no dialogue thing maybe just because it's so unconventional it feels strange it feels almost unnecessary like it'd be different if the character couldn't speak and now you've got like a real reason for no dialogue. But here the character can speak because we do hear her say some things in very strategic, like only two or three moments in the entire film. Because I really thought at some point, I'm like, oh, she, she cannot speak. That's why. But then we do get that. And I realize, oh, okay, this is just a, a kind of a trick that we're working with. All right, fine. 
But um, I think that one, from what I can tell, that's only like a Hulu thing. So maybe that's the only place you can watch it. Um, it's good for a, a, an evening to just kind of hang out and see what it's about. It's not, and it's not one I'm going to necessarily watch again anytime soon, but so be it. The other one, though, the other one that I saw here recently that I should have known better. Something just told me I should have known better. But, you know, speaking of Stephen King adaptations and how they are or are not sometimes successful in terms of are they actually good adaptations, Pet Cemetery Bloodlines is one of those where I just feel like, who asked for this? Like, who, who said we need this film? We need to tell this story. Because I feel like it wasn't really anything anybody was looking for. And I think it even comes across in the film itself. I mean, it just feels like these are actors kind of just going through the motions. And, you know, it's not a, I guess it's more like a prequel to Pet Cemetery, the original story. It's not, but it's not an origin story. It's not like, oh, here's how the Pet Cemetery was created. It's just, it's basically taken us to the past, the younger days of Judd Crandall, who in the original story and original film is the old neighbor who lives across the road or across the highway or whatever. So this is taking us back to his youth, right? And him dealing with uh, a friend who is resurrected by his father with the pet cemetery. And, you know, that kind of causes all kinds of mayhem in the, in the small town or whatever. I, I just feel like you're not telling me anything new about how this works. I mean, there is a little bit of an attempt to explain like the, the, uh, I guess the background of, the whole concept of like how this could all happen. But I mean, just tell me that story. Don't have characters in this movie. Tell me that just show me that. So this just feels kind of like a, I mean, it feels like a waste really. And even some of the, look, even some of the filmmaking here just feels a little bit like sub standard. And it's not to say it's bad, but it just, it feels like a TV movie in a way, if that makes sense. Some movies are just exclusively TV movies now, I guess, just like no one will save you, right? But this one, I don't know, it just doesn't feel up to par with like, I would have watched this in a theater. I mean, even the film before this, the Pet Cemetery remake from, I think, what, like two or three years ago? Like even that one. I just, I, but why did we need it? Like, what was wrong with the original one? From, what was it, like the late 80s or something like that? Or maybe the early 90s? Like, it was fine. It wasn't a runaway hit. And it wasn't even honestly that scary of a, of a film. But I feel like it hit enough of the points of the original story, of the original text that we got the idea and we're good and let's move on. So here I, I just don't know. I don't know what the idea was. I don't know what the thinking was. If, 
we're going to build a franchise out of this now. Uh, come on. This is not the one. There are better, more elaborate Stephen King stories that we could do this with. I'm still waiting for my Dark Tower adaptation, like a proper, for real Dark Tower series. I don't care if you do it as films. I don't care if you do it as like a, you know, multi-season HBO thing, whatever. That's what I want. Why are we still messing with Pet Cemetery? This isn't going to work the same way that it remake did. I'm sorry. It's just not. So, I don't know. That's what I saw recently. I tried to keep it in the horror realm, basically, but uh, none of these are really all that scary. Um, some of them are actually just more just fun. That's what we got for now. So... I'm going to do what I do. I'm going to go watch something new.